Hello, I'm Adam Leslie and welcome to Cardboard Cinema Club, the podcast in which a guest and I discuss a film that we both love. As with all movie podcasts, there will of course be spoilers, although we'll try to avoid giving them away gratuitously. I'm joined today by a very special guest. Why look, it's Heather Wainwright, co-host of my other podcast, Retrotube Archive Television. Hello Heather, how are you and your brand new friend? I am very well today, thank you Miss Leslie, and so is my brand new friend Wilby. Uh, for, he, he's, he's a cat, it's alright, don't worry, There's no, the, the, there are no big announcements. Uh, it's, uh, I just... Yes. I mean, that's a big announcement. It, it's a big announcement. It's not a humanoid announcement, though, which is... Oof, which is Congratulate me, boys. I'm engaged. Congratulate me, boys. Quite. But yes, I'm I'm good. It's It feels a bit weird to be a guest rather than be at home with you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm in charge of you. You have to do what I say now. Adam, that's never going to happen. I'm the boss. Yeah, of course you are. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, the only person I could possibly invite on to talk about a Hard Day's Night would be you, because as anyone who listens to RetroTube knows, we just quote it constantly. We actually and any do. any excuse to deviate from the subject <laughs> to talk about a Hard Day's Night will take it. So this might yeah. get it out of our system. In fact, to be honest, RetroTube is essentially a podcast about a Hard Day's Night with other television shows kind of thrown in just to disguise it. <laughs> yes. Yes, we just will occasionally mention yeah. uh, the Incredible Hulk or the adventure game, but in passing, just talking about Hardy, yeah, yeah, exactly. For people who haven't seen it, can you give us a quick summary of the premise of A Hard Day's Night? Yes, such as there is. Well, um, it's about it's about a rock and roll band, and they're called the Beatles. Uh, they they didn't they didn't really make it. I don't think I don't think I've heard of them since. They have to perform at on on this television show thing that is filmed live at a theatre, and it's basically just the process of them getting from one place to the other, and chaos ensues because of a certain addition to their uh, entourage. Uh, yes. Paul's grandfather, John McCartney. His other one. Because everyone's entitled to. And that's his other one. That's right, that's right. Yes. So that's it, yes, it's a very straightforward premise. Uh, there's no real twists, turns, there's no grand revelations or anything like that. It is. It was intended to be a, a day in the life of the Beatles shot in the manner of a documentary with a bit of French new wave cinema influence and a bit of British kitchen sink drama influence. Oh yes. The drama was the drama was intense. <laughs> that yes, was fresh it, this it, morning. Two and nine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we really get to see the CD underbelly of nineteen sixty four. Get out of it, shorty. Yeah. It all <laughs> It all happened. Except an octave higher. <laughs> yes. Get out of it, shorty! <laughs> Not even I could reach that pitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting film because... I mean, I'm a massive Beatles fan. I've been a Beatles fan since about 1981. Really? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, a, a long old time. It's been a but while. But it's only partially the time of Beatles... Because I'm a Beatles fan that I like this film. I think it's also just a very 
enjoyable film. Yes, it is. And I sort of forget it's the Beatles. It's just the guys in A Hard Day's Night. Yeah, yeah, I know I know what you mean. You you kind of make that bit of mental disconnect, don't you? Um mm. the the same chaps who are on who are on screen sort of running about to can't buy me love are also the same chaps who will later go on to record Let It Be. Uh it's just Yeah. Or the same chaps who are running about to Can't Buy Me Love are the same chaps who recorded Can't Buy Me Love. What's yeah. that all about? I mean, as, as as a big fan of the Monkey's Television series, like, that kind of... That that bit doesn't bother me at all. I'm, like, very, very no. used to that. And obviously that's kind of, like... The, that was sort of, like, the whole inspiration for, for the monkeys happening. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, it's like there's the Beatles and there's the Beatles. It's like there's there's te- there's there's film Beatles and then Beatles. I think so. I, I think it's probably because they are so natural and relaxed on screen. Mm. Most of them. Paul's trying a little bit too hard, I think. But I mean, that's only relative. They're all they're all good. Yes, they are all good. They're all naturally funny and naturally charismatic, and they they all come across well on screen. So they just seem like actors, comedy actors in a film. Yeah. So I spent hours and hours in my childhood staring at the cover of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, you know, st- studying these these strange men with their moustaches in their brightly coloured military uniforms and, you know, looking at all the pictures of them and that. And that's the same guys. Yeah. And it seems it doesn't seem like the same guys. Or it's the thing we mentioned when we were talking about, because uh, a bit of a brag here, we appeared on uh, I Am The Egg Pod podcast talking about... We most um, certainly did. Day 12 of Let It Be. That's never the same four guys, surely. And yet. And yet. And, and it's only four years difference between these four comedy actors running about this Ealing comedy, essentially. It's not actually an Ealing comedy, but it you know, no. has the look mm. and feel of an Ealing comedy. Yeah. To, to these four long-haired rock musicians sitting around in the studio, jamming with their loud instruments and thumping their pagan skins and... <laughs> Yes, I mean a lot can happen in four years, and a lot did happen in four years. So, mm. yes, but it's uh, kind of you kind of expect them. And I, I don't know if it's if a part of it is because obviously we could never be we could never be contemporary fans of sixties music due to the fact that we weren't born until the decade ended. So for us, the original canon of Beatles stuff exists in something of a vacuum. So you can listen to like early Beatles stuff and you, you kind of forget that at, at, at some point they are going to get a little bit older because you're so invested in the early Beatles stuff as you're listening to it. It's kind of this this older generation of Beatles things hasn't actually happened yet. Um, mm. It's like a, yeah. It's it's very strange being a being a retro fan of things that you <laughs> did not experience at the time. <laughs> it is, and you have to also come to terms with watching anthology and seeing them in their horrible nineties clothes, <laughs> their weird nineties hair. That's true. And all those sorts of things, you know, watching them grow up and getting mullets in the seventies. Nobody needs to see that. Throughout this podcast, I have a series of questions that I like to ask the guest. Right. And so the first question is, what does this film mean to you? Why is this f- an important film to you? And particularly since you're famously not a huge, huge Beatles fan, you're just generally someone who loves 60s music. I'm, I'm not a huge Beatles fan. Um, 
which um, comes as not a shock, but certainly a sort of a why are you being so contrary kind of thing <laughs> to, to people um, because... It's the, the Liverpool prerogative. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can like who I like um, because I am Scouse and, and I am in really into the 60s. I've been massively into 60s fashion, music, culture, film, television, etc, etc, etc. Since I was about, I'd say specifically since I was about 10, but even from the ages of like six or seven, I loved 60s films, 60s television and, and things. So because I'm Scouse and because I'm into the 60s, you know, on paper. Bingo. I should be. I should be. Tough. <laughs> Quite. Hewing. Back of the neck. Absolutely. Back, back of the neck. Back, back of the back, net. <laughs> back of the neck. <laughs> I don't know why. But I, I kind of, it's not that I don't like them because I do like them. I, I like them a lot. Um, but I kind of came to them last on my 60s musical extravaganza. So the first band that I really loved and got into was the Monkees. And after that, I went to like the Animals and then Herman's Hermits and then Man from Man and then the Who and then the Kinks and then the Small Faces and then the Mamas and Papas. And then so like the, the, there was an an awful lot of the 1960s that I discovered and fell in love with before I got to the Beatles and when I got to the Beatles I was like oh I like these two it wasn't these are these are the pinnacle these are the only and then everything else is just a derivative it was like oh these these exist in a place alongside all of the other things that I already love um so they they kind of don't have the they don't they don't have like the the elevated position I think the Beatles has for every other Beatles fan uh, they don't have that with me. They just have a an also ram kind of. Yes, they're part of the scene. Yeah, yeah, and it's not it's not with any disrespect. It's it's you know uh, I I you know I, I like them fine. I'm not I'm not saying anything <laughs> against them, guys. You know, calm down. Um, oh God, I can't believe I Scouser just said calm down on air. Oh God, edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> oh. No, how, how, how? Anyway, um, <laughs> can I but... also just say that that uh, the monkeys to the animals—that's quite an—that's quite a step. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I heard. Don't let me be misunderstood. And kind of that—that that was that. But I did. I did finally have a Beatles phase. Uh, I didn't actually get to them until I was seventeen. And you will be absolutely shocked. Shocked, I tell you. Can I hmm. shock you? You certainly can. When I first started my Beatles hyperfixation, I was completely obsessed with Paul McCartney. <gasps> I'm yeah. shocked. I, knew I am shocked. shocked. Yeah. What, what, what uh, went wrong? Uh, well, I watched The Hard Day's Night. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, and then I, I watched. I, I bought. I watched it, and then I completely fell in love with the film and watched it sort of ad nauseum for maybe six months i think i watched it two or three times a day for six months um and no wonder you know all the lines anybody with autism or adhd (laughs) will be like ah yes yes this is the thing um (laughs) but yes i i really i was obsessed with the film and then and then i discovered help which because i'm like a 60s spy show fan i kind of i think help kind of edges it a little bit for me because it is very (sighs) much a good spy romp but 
I was I was just obsessed with the hard days night and I watched it constantly and I ended up having this giant internal wrangling which wasn't even an internal wrangling it ended up being an external wrangling I kept on saying to my to my family I don't know who my favorite beetle is I just don't know who my favorite beetle is I just don't know I don't know they're all so handsome <laughs> they're all so really funny they're all so talented they're all amazing what am I going to do everybody has a favorite beetle apart from me I love them all <laughs> and my family were like I don't know what you're going to do with that information Heather I just just I just pick one just pick one I'm like I know but I can't so uh eventually eventually I, I I whittled it down to two and a half mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Paul, so and Paul got completely edged out. Oh yeah, Paul Schmall. Uh, yes. So uh, I, 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 yeah, it ended up being. I, I discovered it wasn't about Paul at all. It was all about George and Ringo. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things about this film that if you showed this to someone who didn't know anything about the Beatles at all, mm. they would assume that George and Ringo were the primary two Beatles. They would be the top tier Beatles. Yes, you would think so. And then it's... Paul and John are the secondary Beatles. They're kind of because it's George two. and Ringo the the most prominent ones in it. They have the yes, most to do. Very much. Yes, they it's do. The George and Ringo show. Um, there is nothing wrong with that. Not at all. No, it's it's um, nice to actually have that because it's. I think it's the only occasion really where there's any length of time where the pair of them are, are pushed to the fore in the Beatles. Yeah, story, and they, they get to sort of all... like hang out quite a bit. You know, like in the in the train where they, they get all philosophical with each other, and mm-hmm. it's like, mm, I know the psychological pattern plays out with drum skins and that <laughs> that kind of thing. So yeah, it's nice to sort of see George and Ringo just kind of like be there so what did you think of it the first time you saw it i didn't i didn't stop laughing for the entire length of i I just thought it was hilarious it was just great that was the thing i liked most about it was just the the humor i didn't really notice in the end that it was that it was in black and white because it was so energetic and so full of action and humor and it went from sort of one thing to another so fast it was kind of like you can you can definitely and you can definitely tell that the monkeys was inspired by this because it was because it's like a very similar a similar style. So there was something about it because obviously I'd been at that point I'd been watching monkeys episodes ad nauseum since I was twelve. So like five years of constantly watching, and at the time it was before they'd released the the complete series of the monkeys. So I had like maybe about twenty or thirty of their episodes that I played over and 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 over um I missed a few overs so there was something about it that felt very at home another thing I really liked about it was that I could watch it with I watched it with my mum and dad and listening to my dad laugh at the jokes as well that kind of made it feel like it wasn't just mine it was it was something I could have with my mum and dad too Oh, that's nice. Um, so yeah, there, there, there were an awful lot of just. There is nothing associated with the film A Hard Day's Night, or indeed the album A Hard Day's Night because it's a great album too. There is nothing associated with it that gives me any of the sad feelings. It is just one. It's just one giant hit of dopamine, and I just, I just, I just love it. That was that was my first reaction to it, and it is still my reaction seven hundred eighty-two billion times of watching it later. <laughs> It's a very contained film. It's like a little world in a bubble. Yeah. It, it it makes 1964 just seem like 
just a, a great, fun, cosy place to visit, which I'm sure it wasn't. I mean, it was something I mentioned when I was on uh, appearing on Goonpod talking about Doctor Strangelove, which was also shot in 1964, mm. which is kind of like the dark flip side to Hard Day's Night, all these worries about nuclear war and annihilation and all those things. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't know any of that from watching A Hard Day's Night. It's just... No, you wouldn't. It's, it's like a holiday on film. It is like a holiday on film. We, and I think they they managed to capture the spirit of a holiday on film much better than they did on Magical Mystery Tour, which was actually a holiday on film. Yes, is, yes, so, it's not really a holiday for them because it's their working day, but no, it's a holiday, it's a holiday for, for, the for us. To, yeah, just it's escape the real world and go into this this vacuum packed, hermetically sealed version of 1964. Yes, which bears no real resemblance to how it actually would have been for most people I'm sure but it's just it's the film encapsulation of Beatlemania in the same way that Yellow Submarine is pop art it's a pop art film yeah this is Beatlemania film which is a very black and white thing I think so it's just a lovely place to go if you're feeling a bit in a, in a bit of a blah mood or anything like that but Absolutely. can I shock you you can this was lent to me on video by someone at school I can't remember who it might be uh, might have been Simon Keep who is now a member of the folk band Fishclaw just giving them a little oh. shout out I think Simon might have lent it to me somebody lent it to me anyway it was the only Beatles film I hadn't seen yet apart from Let It Be but I'd seen Yellow Submarine many a time I'd seen as previously discussed on Retrotube um, Help and Magical Mystery Tour which I'd found a bit disappointing at the time but uh, I hadn't seen Hard Day's Night yet so I rushed home put it on and I didn't like it what? I know I found it to be quite a, a mean and bad-tempered film. Oh, yeah. No, I, no, I can see that. No, I 100% can see that because you are very, you're very sensitive to any kind of conflict. Well, it's like, here's, here's a film starring your favourite band, but three of the four are in a really bad mood. <laughs> One of them's quite happy, just doing his own weird, vague things, but the other three, they're in a terrible mood. Terrible. It's true. So John is quite happy. He's just... He's just John's just burbling being, along. John's being having weird. a lovely time, having a bath, yeah. doing other things. The other three, oh, the other three are really grumpy. <laughs> to use a scouse term, they have all got a gob on. Norm is furious for most of it. He's really impatient and bad-tempered. He's just a. He's a. He's just really angry about being short. <laughs> yes, uh, and then Victor Spinetti's character, the TV director, he's frustrated he's and angry, angry through most of it. Absolutely, that'll be his sweater. <laughs> I think she knitted it. She knitted it. I was like, "What is this?" And I think particularly that there's one, there's a bit in every Beatles film where you think, "Oh, what's that doing in there?" In Yellow Submarine, it's the bit where they they somehow get a monster inside the submarine, and so they all say how ugly it is until it cries. Well, that's a bit rude. And it's extremely unpleasant. <laughs> and the bit that I think encapsulates the anger and unpleasantness that I that I first sort of was surprised by when I saw the film was Paul's line If you've lost him, I'll cripple you Paul McCartney brandishing his fist threatening to cripple people What film am I watching here? To be fair Paul McCartney threatening to cripple someone it's kind of like when a kitten growls (laughs) It's still a really unpleasant line to have in a film It's it's not, it's not nice is it? He'd punch him so hard (laughs) really odd moment in 
what is actually quite a light heart and, and once I'd seen it a few times I kind of got used to the rhythm of it and the tone of it and it is all like it's very playful uh, my, I mean for people who haven't seen it my description I think would be quite off-putting I think so but it is actually a very playful film it's all done with a twinkle and the grumpiness is done with a twinkle and it's very funny yes it's, it's the best kind of grumpiness you, you know how much I love a bit of grumpiness. <laughs> you do. You love the grumpiness. For, for those of you who don't listen to RetroTube, I mean, A, start, and B, I do document quite frequently uh, how much how much I love grumpy people. Mainly because I am one, and I feel very comfortable <laughs> with them. <laughs> so it grew on me. Yeah, I, I the more I watched it, I mean, I had to watch it repeatedly because it has the Beatles in it. Well, of course. And it is definitely the best film in terms of ratio of Beatles to runtime mm. because they, they're they not really in help very much and even less in Magical Mystery Tour and they're in the final three minutes of Yellow Submarine. So there's sort of incrementally less Beatle as you go through the Beatles films chronologically. Yes, you get less Beatle. So this has book. the most Beatle. And they're treated as individuals as well. Yes. Uh, which they're not so much in the other films. They're more treated as a four-headed collective, a four-headed thing. <laughs> a fiendish thingy. You don't see many of these nowadays, thingy. do you? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think I'm going to carry on this podcast just by speaking in George Harrison quotes from Help and Hard Day's Night. <laughs> yes. Well, I have, I have five and a half pages of notes, most of which are just quotes. It's a very quotable film, as as we know. I love the poetry of the film. There's a lot of poetry in the way that people speak, and it's very heightened. It's not particularly naturalistic. Because Help is good. Help has got a lot of good gags and lots of puns. Mm. But this is written by Alan Owen, the playwright, uh, and he has a playwright's ear for dialogue, I think. So there's some really lovely turns of phrase. Yes, like none of your five bar gate jumps and over sort of stuff. Exactly. I can tell he doesn't like me. It's because I'm little. Now, you've got an inferiority complex, you have. Yeah, I know, that's why I play the drums. It's my active compensatory factor. Going in, then? No, she'll only reject me in the end, and I'll be frustrated. You never know, you may be lucky this time. No, I know the psychological pattern. It plays havoc with me drum skins. Aye, but don't rush none of your five-bar gate jumps and over sort of stuff. What's that supposed to mean? I don't know, I thought it just sounded distinguished like... George Harrison, the scars of distinction. I don't snore. You do, repeatedly. Do I snore, John? Yeah, you're a window rattler, son. It's just your opinion. Do I snore, Paul? With a trombone looter like yours, it'd be unnatural if you didn't. Uh, no, Paulie, don't mock the afflicted. Oh, come off it. It's only a joke. Uh, it may be a joke, but it's his nose. He can't help having a hideous great hooter. And the poor little head trembling under the weight of it. Hey, you won't interfere with the basic rugged concept of my personality, will you, madam? You ugly great brute. You have sadism stamped all over your bloated British kisser. Hey! I'll go on hunger strike. I know you're a caper. The kidney punch and the rabbit clout, the third degree and the size 12 boot ankle tap. What's he on about? I'm a soldier of the Republic. You'll need the mahogany trunching on this bio. A nation once again. A nation once again. Oh, get Lloyd George over there next to the mechanic and the cloth cap. I'll sort this lot out, will you? Come on, Dad. Sit down over here. Ringo, me old scout. So they've grabbed your leg for the Arden too, have they? I'm not exactly a voluntary patient. <laughs> have they roughed you up yet? What? Oh, they're a desperate crew of drippings, and their fists like matured hams for pounding poor defenceless lads like you. Right, and that's yeah. it, eh? One of us has got to escape. I'll get the boys. 
Hold on, son. I'll be back here. For me? And if they get you on the floor, watch out for your brisket. Norm has a lot. Norm has a quite a flowery way of talking. Mm. I'll brook no denial. Yes. It's a strange thing to say, but I love it. He's a good character, is Norm. He is a good character, is Norm. I think also that, and obviously I know that whatever I'm going to say next is going to sound like some sort of advert for the Liverpool Tourist Board, but I know that that it was written after after he had spent time on tour with the Beatles in France. So he had spent an awful lot of time with them and got used to like sort of the way that they spoke and their their particular turns of phrase. And, and, and Scousers do have, we do have a very poetic, why use one word when a thousand will do, way of living and way of speaking. Um, so I, I think, again, that's probably another reason why I liked it so much and another reason why it felt so much like home because it sounds like it sounds like four or five scousers sitting around having a chat because there would be that much dialogue. So although it can sound overtly affected and poetic, particularly as as scousers, it really isn't because not not specifically, but but generally that is that is pretty much the way that we that we do. You have a way with words. You have the Irish way with words. We do. We do. One I thought of was, uh, I'll bind him to me with promises. <laughs> Sorry, I was just I was just remembering that scene. I was just playing it in my head. Then I, I realised I hadn't said anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think the reason that this film is so good mm. is a lot of it is the fact that the Beatles were so keen on giving people value for money yeah i can't remember who it was it's possibly little richard or someone i remember paul mccartney saying talking about speaking to someone from the pre-beatles era the rock and roll era who'd said to him why are you putting so much care and attention over the album tracks why don't you just release some good singles and then just knock out some albums and you know put any old rubbish on the albums and do it really quickly and but paul says that they all remembered what it was like being fans and having to save up your money you save up all your little your bits of pocket money and go down the shop and you really and you're coming back on the bus because Paul's obsessed by bus journeys. You're coming oh, back on the bus is. and you know you're looking at the album. You can't wait to get home and play it and then you put it on and it's you know two good singles and a bunch of rubbish filler. And so he he always remembered that excitement and that disappointment. So they were always very keen that all the albums and all their products at least up until and possibly the, the Help film, which I know you like, but they didn't really have much interest in or say over they were very keen that they didn't want to do a terrible elvis beach movie yeah no i don't no, i understand they wanted proper creative people like richard lester and uh who of course was the had directed with the goons and peter sellers and people like that so they were made up i'm talking like you now they were made up getting they richard were made lester. up well yeah unsurprisingly He'd done the running and jumping and standing still film. He'd done the show called Fred with Peter Sellers and uh, Spike Milligan. So just as they'd been bowled over working with George Martin, who's produced records by Sellers and Milligan, now they're working with the director who directed Sellers and Milligan. So it's it's like it, they're following in the footsteps of their goonish heroes. And I think also they were probably the only musical act that wielded even in 1964, that wielded enough power that they could say, no, we're not doing that. Because I think the only other person with their level of fame would be Elvis, and he had to do what Tom Parker told him. 
yes. So even even Elvis, even Elvis didn't wield any Elvis power. had no agency, yeah. And any other group, like it was a Spencer Davis group, and they said, Spencer Davis group, you must be in this film. And they'd say, we want the film to be better. And the producers would say, okay, Tough. Dave Clark 5 can be in this film instead then. Yes, Lance very much. Home. Very much. And I think that, that did happen because there was, yeah. there was an awful lot of films of that ilk at the time. But this is certainly... Yes, this is. Uh, but but with the Beatles, if you want the Beatles, you want the Beatles. You don't want to get the Hollies instead. I mean, I would love to have seen a Hollies film. Don't get me wrong. Very much so. We we love the Hollies. We but, do but love the Hollies. The, but from the point of view of the public and the producers at, at the time, if the Hollies weren't going to do it, then we'll get the Kinks. If the Kinks won't do it, we'll get Dave Clark Five. And Dave Clark Five could be in all the films. It doesn't matter if they can act or not. I think had the mark of quality because the Beatles could say we want some quality in this I think the film sets the tone in the first few seconds <laughs> you kind of know what you're getting into uh, when part of the opening shot is G- George, George falling, falling over the ground. <laughs> and I, I for the first time watched the uh, 4k restoration he goes down really hard it's not it's not a pratfall is it it's like no, he, he, he actually he, falls over he properly splats and Ringo trips over him and lands right on top of him. They're both going oh, full running Living the speed. dream. Sorry. Uh... <laughs> but I've never seen George looking happier. When he gets up, he's grinning from ear to ear. And he's John thought really it was hysterical. Looking. John thinks it's hysterical. Yeah, just just the fraction of a second before they go off screen, you can see George looking at his hands. So he's clearly grazed his hands as he's gone oh, down. bless him. And I think any other director would have gone, oh, like, we'll go again. That was a terrible mistake. Yeah. Uh, But Richard Lester goes, that's brilliant. (laughs) That's hilarious. Keep running. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, it's great. It really, like, from the very start of the film, it sets you up for what you're going to get, what the tone's going to be, and just how much fun and we don't care. It's not going to be a really tightly controlled, over-manufactured thing. It's going to have it's going to have be a little bit rough around the edges in a delightful and charming way. Bit organic. And the opening scenes, uh, I think they're supposed to be in Liverpool, but they're filmed in Marylebone Station in London. There are definitely like sort of certain parts of the station that do resemble Lime Street, though, quite quite well. So uh, I I wouldn't have I wouldn't have known unless I unless I, I read up on it. Um, because obviously, when you when you're looking at these things that are that are historical, you uh, you kind of have to think, oh, uh, well, that's not what it looks like now, but it's kind of it like that thing is in that particular place, which is also so. Yeah, um, I, I think I think they chose locations really, really well. And I was delighted when I found out it was Marylebone Station because I didn't recognise it either. But when I used to get the bus to and from London, that was where the bus stop where I got the uh, National Express X49 to Milton Keynes back from London going through Newport Pagnell wow there's a bit of bit of bus nerdery for you it doesn't exist anymore it it, it went right through my village so I could I could get on the bus from my tiny village to London wow which is unthinkable now but I yeah I spent hours in Marylebone station waiting for the bus milling around sitting in the cafe so when I found out that a hard day's night. Just like, oh yeah, now I recognise it. It's like yeah, the the cafe where you see John queuing up. Yeah, it's like oh, I've had a cup of tea in that cafe, and you you can see exactly whereabouts all the angles are and everything. It's like wow, this is brilliant. It's like being in a film set. <laughs> like the it Beatles is. were here. They actually walked on these actual steps. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. Oh, and M and G, all in a row. <laughs> quite, quite. In fact, so exciting, you could probably stick an F in that sentence as well. I get so excited, I spurt. <laughs> You'd look great with an apple in your bob. <laughs> I love all the little period details. It's interesting because it's nearly 60 years old. It's 58 years old at the time of recording. Wow. But it seems so much more modern and fresh than films even made in the late 60s and 70s. If you watch one of the slightly tawdry sex comedies of the 70s, they seem so much they more dated and old-fashioned. Old, yeah. 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 It's like, wow, this is a whole other world. Like, you peer through it and like, how can people have lived in that grotty, grimy universe that it's it's like everyone's wearing these weird clothes. They all look strange. That's true. And even the late sixties, yeah, even a, two or three years after this, and everyone's talking like beatniks. Hey, man, where's the bread, Daddy O? And they're all doing that weird late sixties lingo. Mm. And well, there's, there's there's none of that. No, it's it's they just seem normal. I don't I don't know if it was by design or by look. But it feels and looks like a timeless film. It could have been, you know, maybe, maybe not with with stuff like technology-wise, like the ways of, of of filming that was like that was shown from sort of the director's box and and things like those those particular scenes probably don't look the same now. But you wouldn't really need to change very much to bring that film out now. It would like it's still four idiots on train. <laughs> and I think the Beatles look pretty timeless. Yes, they do. They're they're like Laurel and Hardy, or they're like the Marx Brothers. That they're so, or Charlie Chaplin. They're so iconic that they don't really exist within their own time anymore. No, if that makes sense. So the Beatles, particularly, I think the Mop Top Beatles, don't really exist solely within the sixties. They just are the Beatles. You're just used to seeing the Beatles, and they look like that. And so they, I think they make the film feel a lot more present. Yes. Definitely, definitely. In, in the same way as watching a Laurel and Hardy film doesn't feel like you know, 80 years ago. But I love seeing all the little details like uh, Norm's milk triangle. Yeah. Trying to open. Yeah, you could never get milk out of a vending machine these days. No. And if Why? you did, it would come in a bottle. It wouldn't come yeah. in a triangle, a cardboard triangle. It certainly wouldn't come in a... Or it at least have a straw. Yes, you wouldn't have to tear it off with your teeth. Tear no. off the corner with your teeth. No. So I guess the idea is you suck out, you suck through one, you tear off a corner and then suck through that. I don't know. I I, I was just that baffled by it. I was just like, <laughs> it's certainly not a can of coke, is it? <laughs> there is the the uh, the gag later of John snorting coke, i.e. a coke bottle. Yes. Um, oh, actually, on the on this high res transfer, I think it's actually Pepsi, <gasps> which ruins the gag. But John doesn't care. John, he in this film, care. doesn't care. And I love no. the fact that that is actually his character. Because mm. Norm is constantly having a nervous breakdown. Not at what the Beatles are doing. Not like he does. Do you know, if, if, if Paul McCartney wants to go around following his grandfather, um, giving himself <laughs> a nervous breakdown, that's fine. If Ringo wants to go off and go parading before it's too late, that's fine. If George wants to become an accidental fashion icon, doesn't give a damn. John Lennon breathes. Norm has a heart attack. <laughs> I think that's the part of the film that doesn't quite work for me. Do you know, it's my favourite thing about... Oh, is it? <laughs> the constant I mean, rivalry. 
It's, it's fun, but John is the only one who's in a good mood. So he seems like the easiest one to get on with in this. Like, he's quite happy. He's not got the hump. He's not gone off in a sulk like Ringo has. He's not constantly sour like George is. And he's not angry and frustrated by his grandpa like Paul is. He's just quite ha- happily being strange. Just, all he wants to do is see that lady's stamp collection. That's. <laughs> I don't have any stamps. <laughs> I, I wrote down about John. He's a mischief sprite. He's the embodiment of cheerful, chaotic neutral. He is. He is very. He is very puck. Mm, he's very puckish, isn't he? Yes, that's that's a good. Yeah, because uh, the other three are invested in the narrative. They're invested in what's going on. But you know, particularly, they're just frustrated and enraged by John McCartney. Mm. And John's John Lennon is sitting outside of it, being surreal and inscrutable, and just adding whimsy to the whole thing. Yes, he's just there with a giant wooden spoon for yes. his own amusement. He's the most like a Marx brother. Because the whole thing that yeah, that people comparing them to the Marx brothers. I think he's the most he's the most like Groucho. Yes, he is definitely. But but less disruptive than Groucho, I think, because the disruptive element is Paul's grandfather, Wilfred Bramble. Yes. He's the one who's actually causing mayhem and causing you know the people in charge to have nervous breakdowns and demand a glass of milk and tranquilizers. I see it all now. It's a plot. A plot. And the Beatles have relatively well behaved compared to compared to grandfather. <laughs> they are. <laughs> they have never done a thing wrong in their life. <laughs> <laughs> so I I enjoy the rivalry rivalry between John and Norm, but it I don't quite <laughs> see what it is that John's doing to wind him up. I think the thing the imply I think it's implied that John will do something at some point. To <laughs> <laughs> there is always the constant threat of Lennon for Norm, and um, I feel like. What I would like to see is maybe a prequel where we see John <laughs> doing things specifically to wind Norm up. I mean, there are things Pranking like... him. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there are things like, uh, you know, when, when they go off to the nightclub after they've been told to reply to all these fan letters. And, um, when they escape and do the Can't Buy Me Love romp. Like, th- there are things that Definitely, John is the is the the driving force behind the mischief. But it feels a little bit it feel a little bit sort of disproportionate when when Norm goes. I've toyed with the idea of a ball and chain, but he just rattled them at me and in public too. <laughs> it does feel like a different film, doesn't it? Or like a different draft before before Paul's grandfather was added. Yes. But- Yes, Lennon was the mischief maker, and actually, that would be quite interesting if Wilfred Bramble hadn't been in it at all, and it was actually John was. was, uh, (laughs) John's the problem. Chaotic evil. (laughs) Chaotic, chaotic. (laughs) (laughs) For all his reputation of just being this hardened, grumpy fellow, I think he was genuinely and generally a very nice man until he got a drink or some drugs in him. I think Mm. that's where his dark side came from. So I think I think usually if you found him sober, he'd actually be very sweet and pleasant. Yes, I think so. I think so. So they should do a prequel in which John's drunk and furious. Yes. <laughs> just be make it really dark. <laughs> Norm just cowering in the corner behind Shake. <laughs> Speaking of Shake, I was really because at, at that at that particular time I didn't 
I didn't know quite so much about sort of the 60s television, 60s film. I didn't realise until quite a lot later that actually John Junkin's not Scouse. No, it's a good accent, isn't it? It's my biggest pet peeve in life. Um, when anybody who isn't Scouse attempts the accent and yeah. it just sounds horrendous. I find it physically painful, but I also find it very, very insulting when anybody does it. And I, I, re- I, mm. I really get angry about it. I, sh- I shall be careful. I am hyper aware of anybody who's not actually Scouse attempting the accent because I hate it. I, I think my dad my dad always used to describe Scouse as being the pure language, and I agree with him. Um, so anybody who sort of comes in, and especially in that sort of I'm, I'm imitating a Scouse person for the purposes of comedy to make them look silly. And a Londoner. I, I really hate it. I hate it. And, and, and it's, such a difficult, it's such a difficult one to get right. It really is. It's not like There's so many subtle permutations. Yes, yeah, and 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 also the Scouse accent is different from north to south, um, so it's it's tricky. It's a tricky one to do. And I can, speaking about the Scouse accent, I can hear it coming out even more in myself than normal. So I'm, I apologize. Go for everybody. it. I mean, it, um, I shouldn't apologize for it. And it's 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 the appropriate time to have the Scouse accent. I mean, I've always kind of got it a little bit, but I can just kind of like. Talking about it, I can just hear it a lot more, a lot more in myself. Anyway, I genuinely didn't didn't know that John Junkin wasn't Scouse, and the only reason I I found that out was because I saw an interview him, an interview with him where he said that he had he he didn't speak to the Beatles in his normal in his normal accent to make them feel more comfortable. He started off speaking to them in Scouse, so they didn't know they didn't know that he wasn't Scouse either at first. Yeah, I, I heard that they didn't they didn't want non Scousers. Yes, but Richard Lester liked him and cast him. I mean, he's a he's a he's a great character though, Shake, and and, and I, I don't think there were any character actors at the time who could have quite played that fine line, sort of between being sort of the affable the affable dumb one in the background and. Also, the anchor who kept who kept the whole thing together. Because if Shake hadn't been there, Norm would have been Norm would have gone off. Nobody would have had a cheese butty. <laughs> Norm is a very small and angry man, and Shake is very big. And I mean, they they, they were based on Mal Evans and Neil Aspinall. Yes. So you can, and particularly now we've had so much exposure to Mal Evans and um, Let It Be. And who doesn't can... love exposure to Mal Evans? Because he's exactly. Cupcake. So we can we can see exactly where that characterization has come from. This very uh, the much big, the big unflappable character. Yes, Mal Evans. He has a walk-on part in Hard Day's Night. So I think he's the only non-Beatle who's been in every Beatle film apart from mm. the Yellow Submarine, which they were barely in. But he's he's in all the Beatles films. I think he's the only person other than them. The first scene where they're all together is the scene in the train carriage where they, we get introduced to Paul's grandfather. That's the first scene they shot. And it sort of feels like it. It feels like they're kind of warming up a bit. It's the most static scene. They're just all sat. The four of them are sat in a carriage or the five of them are sat in a train carriage facing each other and just doing it's just this little bit of dialogue between them. And there isn't so much running about yet. So it, it, it's kind of the warm up scene for the film. But it also has a lot of the most memorable dialogue 
which we quote quite often. All the time. But I've seen your grandfather. He lives in your house. George's delivery is so good. He's he's so underrated. You can tell he means it. Yes. <laughs> the derision of that's not your grandfather. That's, yeah, he really <laughs> looks my mind free. That's not your grandfather. I've seen your grandfather. <laughs> You're talking about, you idiot. How, how <laughs> you dare you have an opinion on your family tree? <laughs> hey, pardon me for asking, but who's that little old man? Uh, what little old man? That little old man. Oh, that one, that's my grandfather. Your grandfather? Yeah. That's not your grandfather. It is, you know. But I've seen your grandfather. He lives in your house. Oh, that's my other grandfather, but he's my grandfather as well. How do you reckon that one out? Well, everyone's entitled to two, aren't they? And it's my other one. We know that, but what's he doing here? Well, my mother thought the trip would do him good. How's that? He's nursing a broken heart. Ah, poor old thing. Hey, mister, are you nursing a broken heart? He's a nice old man, isn't he? He's very clean. Hello, Grandfather. Hello. He can talk then, can he? Of course he can talk. He's a human being, isn't he? Well, if he's your Grandfather, who knows? <laughs> and we're looking after him, are we? I look after myself. Yeah, that's what I'm afraid of. He's got you worried, then. Him. He's a villain. A real mixer. And he cost you a fortune in breach of promise cases. Get on. No, straight up. I am. Hello, Shake. Hello, Shake. You got on all right, then? No. Oh. Well, we're here. Norm will be along in a minute with the tickets. Hey, who's the little old man? It's Paul's grandfather. Oh, I better thought so. Uh... No, that's his other one. Oh, that's all right, then. Clean, though, isn't he? Because everyone was raving about how great Ringo was. Uh, Ringo is great. Scene. Oh, Ringo's, yeah. He's good, but I think George is better. I think he's the more natural. That first line of Ringo's, if he's your grandfather, who knows, ha, ha, ha. I still don't know if that's deliberate or not. I think it was. I think it was deliberate. (laughs) I think George definitely gets a lot of... He gets a lot of the good lines. Like, for example, um, the line with the the, the whole shirt scene. The whole shirt scene, yeah. Which is is, joyous. Joy, it really is. We we just love Sam and the producer. He's awful. But even, even like, and my particular personal favourite scene <clears throat> for no reason particularly but when uh, George is teaching Shake how to shave he just has such great lines just like everything he comes out with is golden oh go on George don't be ridiculous but you said I could honestly my mind boggles at the very idea a grown man and you haven't shaved with a safety razor it's not my fault I come from a long line of electricians well you're not practising on me alright then but show us Oh, come on, man. Oh, 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 and even to the point where in the the big tele, the, the, the big interview room scene with with just one word, I think he steals potentially the entire film. 
what would you call that hairstyle you're wearing, Arthur? Yes. I remember, in fact, the first time I saw that wasn't on a hard day's night. It was, I'm not 100% sure because as as previously stated, not a giant Beatles fan. But am I right in, in thinking that they showed the Beatles anthology on television before they brought it out on video? Yes. Yes. When it was on when it was on television, we all watched it as a family. And I remember seeing that scene. And I think, when did anthology come out? Um, 95, 96. Yeah. I think, I think it went up to New Year, New Year's Eve 95, I think. Right. So I was like 11 at the time. Um, so it was a, it was a long time before I actually discovered the Beatles for myself properly. And they were, the, and so at the time these were just, this was just a group of people that I didn't really know very much about, but I remember seeing that particular clip of what would you call that hairstyle you're wearing, Arthur. I was la- I was out th- weeks later. It would just come. It would just randomly come into my head, and I would, and I'd still burst out laughing. I just thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard in my life. <laughs> uh, what would you call that uh, hairstyle you're wearing, Arthur? Yeah, George is George is massively underrated, and I don't, I, don't, I I feel like he should have probably, or he could have certainly if he'd wanted to. Um, you know, acted in, in more things than just just the Beatley things. I think so, yeah. I don't know how big his range would be. I don't know if he could play a character other than George Harrison, but I think there's plenty of room for George Harrison just to be in films, just the Same. character George Harrison. Just like... <laughs> I'm just and now gonna... here's George Harrison. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Thank you. George is very good Thank with business. You. He's good at doing bits of business. So there's the, the like the shaving scene. He's doing. He's he's delivering these lines whilst doing the, the shaving demonstration. Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, he's he's showing Shake how to shave by uh, putting shaving foam on his image in the mirror and then shaving the mirror. Yes. Uh, and so George is doing that while delivering the lines. There's also a little moment I really like when they're trying to find Ringo. And they're at the stage door, and George's line is something like "Grandfather stirred him up," seemingly, but he gets distracted by the the girl, the, the chorus girl who is there. Yes, and just sort of starts to like. He fiddles with her strap. He fiddles with her strap whilst delivering his line. He's very good at that sort of thing, like or chewing on a roll, a bread roll. He's just very good at doing other things, doing bits of business whilst. He's good at multitasking. Yes. Yes. I think he's the most naturalistic. Yes. He's the one who most gets it. And I think also he was the one who was who was generally within the Beatles the least nervous about stuff. He was he's the the archetypal little brother who just doesn't I don't care. I don't care. When they did the Decker audition, the famous Decker audition where Dick Rowe told them that guitar groups were on the way out. Apparently Paul and John were climbing the walls with nerves and uh George George but wasn't he wasn't nervous he didn't care yeah so i think he's he's very at home in front of the camera because he just he just didn't know to be nervous they say lennon doesn't have any nerves but it's actually george that doesn't have any nerves only one of them's allowed to have nerves at a time yes <laughs> paul's always got the nerves paul hogs the nerves <laughs> P.L. paul <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've also got uh, in this scene slarty bartfast is how i know richard that's Lennon a name best. Yeah, he he plays Slarty Bartfast in Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy. He's 39 in this scene, Richard Vernon playing the uh, old businessman. You're joking. I'm going to be 39 on Friday. 
Yeah, he's 39. Wilfred Bramble playing grandfather is 52. See, here's my controversial thoughts on the old businessman. He's rude, but I think he's right. (laughs) I think if he wants to close the window because there's a draft and he's cold, then he should be able to do that. And he shouldn't have to listen to loud library music (laughs) <laughs> whatever it is they're listening to on the radio that's right he just he's just not very polite he just needs to be less rude about it but i mean to be fair he does travel on the train regularly twice a week so i suppose he has some rights i fought the war for your sort bet you sorry you won that's a great line yeah you're just tripping over great quotable lines give us a kiss if you're gonna have a barney can i hold your coat it's a, it's a wonderful line. I do love that. Also, the lines, and there were mainly uh, norm lines that I misheard. Are the famous one, or famous for you, is Show Tevil. Show Tevil. Yes. <laughs> Come on, then, Show Tevil. And I was like, what's Show Tevil? Is that some kind of. That's some kind of Scouse thing, Show Tevil. Yeah, because I, I think you actually asked me, didn't you? When, is like, that something from Liverpool, Show Tevil? What, what, what's a Show Tevil? I'm like, I don't know what a Show Tevil is. And then, and then, like, you said it in context, and I was like, you said, you old devil. He, he old devil. <laughs> yes, he's he old devil. Show, show Tevil. Show Tevil. Show Tevil. I knew it. He started it. I should have known. Drew up. You two have never had an argument in your life. And in two minutes flat, he's got you at it. He's a king mixer. He hates group unity, so he gets everyone at it. Well, I suggest you just give him the photos and have done with it. Oh, all right, Joel Tevil. Here you are. An underrated bit is John Lennon's George Harrison impersonation. George Harrison. George Harrison Scouser, think. Yeah, I think it's the only time on record of John Lennon impersonating George. It is a good impression. It yeah, is. <laughs> Speaking of, of mishearing, um, this is this is just like a quick aside that kind of I feel like I need to clear up. I watch everything with subtitles now. Um, because it's one of those weird neurodivergent I can't hear without subtitles thing. Yeah. And it drives me mad because every time any Beatle in Hard Day's Night says come Ed, it's subtitled as come out. What? And it's not. It's not come out. It's, it's come not. ahead. It's come ahead, isn't it? It's like come come ahead, yeah. Come ahead. Everyone knows that. Beatles say come ahead. Apparently not. Come out. Apparently not. So please please don't say come out when you mean come ed, because they are two completely different things. The other one was when Norm says, I'll brook no denial. I thought he was talking Latin. I thought he was saying, a brute no denial. (laughs) Wow, what does that mean? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And the other one, the other misheard line, is uh, when Norm says, it's surging with girls out there. And John says, can I have one to surge me, sir? But I thought he was saying, can I have one to surgery, sir? Like, it was a, a way of, like, can I play doctors and nurses with one? Wow. But it's like, can I have one to surgery? That's that's potentially even ruder than what he actually said. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think it's the way he says it, because... Because I think the line reading should be, can I have one to surge me? But he says, can I have one to surge me? It's surging with girls out there. Can I have one to surge me, sir? So I was slightly disappointed he didn't want to operate on anyone. <laughs> I bet they weren't. <laughs> You're not a qualified surgeon. <laughs> you leave my appendix alone. <laughs> yes, that's the unreleased Beatles song. You leave my appendix alone. <laughs> I want to hold your tonsils. 
they released Sorry. Mr. Moonlight instead. That was a um, that's a very deep cut Beatles reference. That is a anyway. very deep cut Beatles reference. Yes, of course, Patty Boyd is in this playing one of the schoolgirls. Yes. Even though the Beatles are a bit dismissive of the films, and George particularly, he doesn't care about anything. I don't care. But the first the first Beatles film gave him a wife, and the second Beatles film gave him his religion. So he can't be too unhappy about it because that's where he first got into Indian music and just Indian culture and Eastern culture generally was oh, on right. set of help. And yeah, the restaurant scene is where he first heard the sitar. Ah. What's that? He went, hello. Sounds very twangy. I like that. TikTok, I say. <laughs> I really hello. hope that that was his actual reaction. <laughs> what, what have we here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I just hope that that <laughs> what 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 really there should have been was uh, a scene in Help where <laughs> where George was like doing all of that, but like looking at the sitar player while while Paul and Eleanor Braun were doing the whole. Your friend is in great danger. I can say no more. Please say no more. <laughs> <laughs> like if it had just cut between those two. Between that and, oh, wow, look at how many strings that's got. Whoa. <laughs> George is eyeing up the sitar player in the same way that he's eyeing up the secretary's feet later in this film. <laughs> yes! <laughs> slightly odd, a slightly odd moment where he's like, Calm no. down, George. <laughs> he's Calm giving down, you the George. full the nostril cam- flare. The cameras are rolling. Yes. Put your eyebrows down. <laughs> <laughs> Don't see many of these nowadays, do you? <laughs> yes, uh, uh, Patty apparently preferred Paul, which you can kind of tell once you know. George was second choice. I think I think Yoko also preferred Paul. Wow. <laughs> I think all the Beatles' wives generally got their second choice, apart from Linda. Apart from <laughs> apart from Maureen. Maureen and I have a lot in common. We both we both love Ringo and George. Yeah. Yeah. We have good taste. Oh, I just wrote down George's wink. I think I just like George winking as he goes past Same. the woman who's flirting with Ringo. Oh, yes. just, George gives her a big hearty wink on the way past. <laughs> like, if you, if you don't fancy the drummer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guitar is here. <laughs> I'll be back in five minutes to go with the loo. <laughs> Heather and I certainly like to talk, don't we? And we're still only halfway through. Join us soon for part two of our chat about a hard day's night. But till then, cheerio!